thanks everyone for coming tonight. Um, I don't think I need to give a big overview of the Dharma Buffet since we are all regulars to this uh, Thursday night group. Um, but I will give a bit of an overview of this class and the context of the class, um, just to review. We are, um, the, the series of classes that I'm doing here on the second Thursdays are called the Principal Teachings of Buddhism. And we are referring to a genre of text called the Lam Rim, which is uh, a uh, unique um, product of Tibetan Buddhism. And the Lam Rim, uh, Lam Rim means literally steps on the path. And the idea is that it's a, a sequence of uh, meditations that we can do to, tr to transition from an ordinary life being buffeted by habits and, and reactivity, um, gaining control of our mind, developing uh, spiritual qualities, and ultimately coming out on the other side as a, an enlightened being. Uh, I sometimes call it the enlightenment engine or uh, an assembly line process where you sort of gather the components necessary to, to end up on the other end, uh, an, um, a being with total omniscience and perfect compassion. So uh, we're looking at a text called The Three Principal Paths, uh, written by Jaitsong Kappa. Uh, Jaitsong Kappa was the founder of the school of Tibetan Buddhism called the Geluk School of Tibetan uh, Buddhism. Um, Jaitsong Kappa was the teacher of the first Dalai Lama. We are now on the 14th Dalai Lama. So the Gelukpa School is the tradition of the Dalai Lamas and the founder of the school uh, was the teacher of the first Dalai Lama. Um, there's a, a strong emphasis on the monastic practices of Buddhism. Um, and uh, that's really what we're getting into with these classes, the principal teachings of Buddhism and the three principal paths. Um, the, so that's what the root text is, the three principal paths, 14 verses. This is the shortest Lam Rim text that I know of. And then also in the reading that you all have, there is the commentary by Pabonka Rinpoche, who is a contemporary master of Buddhism. He lived from 1878 to 1941. So he died before the Chinese invasion, um, but he was considered a prolific teacher of Buddhism in Tibet, and especially because he taught lay people as well as monks. He felt that he felt strongly that Buddhism wasn't limited, the practice of Buddhism wasn't limited to people in the monastic tradition, but it was available to lay people who were living an ordinary life with a family and a career and things like that. So he was uh, quite a bit of a populist and um, uh, taught quite openly to people. It's traditional before we begin a Buddhist teaching to go for refuge in the three jewels. Uh, this is, a, this is the, a very kind of buddhist way of looking at it, the three jewels. Um, but they are a way of um, gathering our mind and thinking about why we're doing this and uh, what we really seek to get out of it. So the three jewels, there are, there are various beautiful poems that 
are recited in traditional Buddhism, uh, I find it helpful to think about what the three jewels mean to me. Uh, the concept of refuge is really fundamental to Buddhism, and refuge means shelter or protection. And so when we're going for refuge, we are calling up in our mind what are the things that can really offer us protection and help and shelter uh, when we're living in the sort of habitual, impulsive realm of samsara. And the three jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so going for refuge in the Buddha, to me, means that I take solace, that I find hope and inspiration in the idea that there is a perfected state of consciousness, that I'm not limited by my body and my mind, but there is a form of being that is unlimited. Uh, the Buddhas are characterized as having unlimited wisdom, un unlimited omniscience, and perfect love and perfect compassion. And in fact, omniscience, wisdom, and compassion are how to become a Buddha, and those are the ultimate characteristics of a Buddha. So we begin by imagining that this, this state of consciousness is attainable and that it's something that we can work towards and cultivate in ourselves. And that provides protection, that knowledge that, that this is our destiny. The second of the three jewels is the Dharma. And the Dharma is the instructions or the path to achieve this state of, of Buddhahood, of awakening. The word, Buddhahood, the word Buddha means a lamp that dispels darkness. So the English translation enlightenment really is quite uh, apt. It's quite accurate. It means that once the lamp is lit, the, the darkness ceases to exist. And the Dharma is the, is the set of instructions that we can follow, the practices that we can follow, the Lam Rim in the case of these classes, that, uh, that is going to lead us to this ultimate state. And we take refuge, we take solace, we find shelter in the idea that, that there is a path, that, that awakened beings existed in our realm and left behind a trail of breadcrumbs that we can follow. And the third of the three jewels is Sangha. And Sangha means a community of practitioners. And so in the most accessible sense, it means that we have a community of people who come together to study and practice the Dharma together, and that we have people in our lives who are supporting us to, to cultivate our spiritual lives, to cultivate our karmic evolution, to, to cultivate our ethics and our altruism. And in a larger sense, the, the Sangha is the, the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, the beings who have put these teachings into practice and produced their ultimate results before us. Because even though we can't necessarily see them because our own karma obscures our vision, our own habits prevent us from being able to see these beings, nonetheless, they are around us. They're surrounding us. We have these beautiful illustrations and paintings and uh, sculptures to help represent these beings. 
but in fact there we live in the same realm as the Buddhas do we just don't notice because we're preoccupied with a bunch of bullshit and the motivation is the really Buddhism only works if you put it into practice it's not something that faith and belief is not sufficient to produce the results of Buddhism. Buddhism to, to produce the results of Buddhism, it's a practice. It's a, a machine that you have to build for yourself and then pilot that machine. Just believing that the machine exists is insufficient. The, the way that we build the machine is altruism. We have to, because of the laws of karma, which we've studied in the previous classes on renunciation, because of the laws of karma, we know that we have to want it more for others than we do for ourselves in order to realize it for ourselves. We have to be willing to give away good karma in order to generate good karma. And therefore, we have to set a very high motivation. We have to um, see our efforts impacting as many people as possible, as many beings as possible in order for the boomerang effect that uh, that sort of you know shot around the sun to come back at us with with all the greater intensity and so we set our motivation and this is bodhicitta this is the uh, bodhisattva wish the uh, which is uh, the topic of tonight's class we have to recognize that our enlightenment is it is based upon and enmeshed with the enlightenment of all the other beings that we experience in our universe. We have to want enlightenment for them. And so we are putting these things into practice, we're studying these things, we're carving this time out of our life when we could be watching Netflix, whatever's on Netflix, and instead thinking about, instead we're coming here to work on ourselves. But why are we working on ourselves so that we can become better for others? So, the three principal paths, which is the title of the root text, the principal teachings of Buddhism. The three principal paths are renunciation, uh, uh, bodhicitta, or, or ultimate altruism, and wisdom. And in our previous couple of classes, we have covered renunciation. And if you missed those classes, um, I have posted those recordings online at mindbodyinline.com and you're welcome to listen to the um, previous classes, review them um, because it is a, um, you know, we're building a platform and so the higher floors are dependent on the lower floors and so, and of course we'll come back and we'll touch on renunciation and we'll go over it many times because it's, we've got to build up that momentum. So renunciation is in short uh, recognition of cause and effect, recognition that the unexamined life is um, buffeted by reactivity and habit and unconscious or subconscious impulses. And that we're generally, if we're not really paying attention to our lives, we're generally creating negative karma by... Um, in little ways, you know, hurting other people to get ahead. It's not necessarily robbing a bank, but it is like the little ways that we 
the little ways that we selfishly think, if I do this for me, it'll help me get ahead. Realizing that that kind of attitude, uh, in both gross and subtle ways, is recreating the, habit, the habits and the reactivity and the impulsiveness that is, you know, it's a cycle, right? The habits create the habits. And we went into a lot of detail in that in those classes. The second of the three principal paths is bodhicitta, altruism, um, developing correct motivation. And the third of the principal paths is wisdom, getting really clear on how the universe is working. Um, metaphysics, um, what is underlying the material, what we perceive as material causality, what is the subtle substrate that is making reality the way that it is for us. Because of course reality is different for different people. Two people have the, are in the same place in the same time but have totally different experiences. I mean, the, you know, a really basic example is when is what I see as a pen, if I show it to a dog, the dog might see it as a chew toy. And the dog's not wrong. The dog, in the dog's universe, the chew toy exists. It's not a pen in the dog's universe. The dog, if it was a pen in the dog's universe, if the pen was a pen, the dog would write with it. You know what I mean? But it's not a pen. It's a pen to me, but it's not a pen in everyone's universe. And uh, so, and that's not just uh, perspectivism. That's actually the way the universe is happening. So that's a, a teaser for future classes because that's what we'll be getting into down the road a little bit. But tonight's class is on bodhicitta. So, referring to uh, the class outline, the, uh, the first item is the meaning of the term bodhicitta. Um, in its most basic uh, in its most basic breakdown, bodhicitta means uh, the wish for enlightenment. And so we're, we want the mind of the awakened beings. But I don't find that definition very satisfying, wish for enlightenment. It doesn't really describe anything because it sort of sounds like a pie in the sky kind of thing, like, oh, someday I'm going to get enlightened. It doesn't really tell me anything about what the wish for enlightenment means. Um, the wish for enlightenment, uh, I, I really kind of mentioned it a, a moment ago when we, were, when we were talking about motivation, because uh, the textbook definition of bodhicitta is the wish to become enlightened for the sake of all sentient beings. That's like if somebody gives you a quiz, if there's like a pop quiz and on the quiz is what's the definition of, of, a, of bodhicitta, it's the wish to become enlightened for the sake of all sentient beings. It's like... Everybody repeat after me. Um, but it's, it's, so we're trying to cultivate this intense compassion for other beings. With renunciation, we realize what a mess we're in, that we're not gonna be able to dig ourselves out with the kinds of tools that we are currently using. We need to develop a different set of tools. Recognizing that I'm trapped in samsara and I'm not gonna get out until I do something really different with my life. Like, I'm in deep, I'm in deep shit. And until I get a recognition that no matter how hard I work on the apparent good things of this life, I'm never going to get myself out. I'm just digging a deeper hole. 
by selfishly trying to like build my little sandcastle and my little you know walled garden is only creating more bad karma is only ensuring lower future rebirths is only ensuring that this that that little selfish me is going to be perpetuated into the future and uh so once we get a grip on this idea that I'm in trouble here, then renunciation is having deep compassion for the this, this state that, we, that I am stuck in. Bodhicitta is when I look out from my little isolated world out into the outer world and see countless other beings that are in the same place. Everything from insects up to the highest beings you can think of that we, that we interact with, that we see, kings and queens and whatnot, presidents and whoever, CEOs, that all beings have essentially the same intrinsic requirements, which is to avoid pain and to seek comfort and happiness. And regardless of if they have six legs and they scurry or if they have huge brains and run multinational corporations, they're... they're they're fundamentally the same. All beings are fundamentally the same. And so that I'm in trouble and I'm not going to get out on my current trajectory feeling, we then realize that all, everybody else is in this situation too. And this triggers in us, a, it should trigger in us uh, a deep sense of compassion. The, the, the Sanskrit word karuna, which is often translated as compassion. But karuna, compassion is not a sufficient translation for the word karuna, the four, you know, the four infinite thoughts, maitri, karuna, mudita, upekshanam, uh, upeksha, actually. And the second of these, this, these are kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, the four perfectionizers, that if we cultivate these thoughts and apply them to others, they, they uh, polish our mind until it's pure. And karuna, the second one, is commonly translated as compassion, but compassion is like a profound understatement for what karuna is pointing to. It means like a heart-wrenching, deep, exquisite, intolerable compassion for other beings. And this is getting closer to what bodhicitta is pointing at. But, and so there are, there are levels of the realization of bodhicitta. We have, we have the definition of a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is one who has had the realization of bodhicitta. They're kind of synonymous. Bodhicitta is the, is the feeling, and a bodhisattva is one who holds the feeling. And so we're trying, to cultivate the, we're trying to cultivate bodhicitta so that we can become a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is a fundamentally different kind of person. A bodhisattva is one whose mind has irre irrevocably been turned away from samsara and has been pointed towards the dharma. It's like their compass has a new north. And instead of the, the side channels, the, the you know, uh, desire and aversion constantly buffeting them around, a, a bodhisattva is one who knows that those are ephemeral things and whose mind is pointed in a, is laser pointed, who has um, an OCD messiah complex. 
Bodhisattva is not going to get a very good score on their psychological examination, but they're doing something real with their life. They have an understanding of a realization, a deep visceral sense of how and why we're caught in samsara and what the alternatives are. And so uh, on, the, on an even deeper level, a bodhisattva is a being who has recognized that all existing phenomena, bear with me, all existing phenomena are absent of having intrinsic existence. And therefore, the reality that we perceive is a projection. It is our own habitual reactivity and impulsive way of seeing the world is what makes the world the way it is. And therefore, when we perceive other beings as suffering, that is the result of our own karma, the way that we see the world, is causing us to perceive other beings as, as being in suffering. And that's what makes the world the way it is. Those beings are really there in suffering, but they're not out there in suffering on their own, independent of being perceived as suffering beings by yours truly. Speak for yourself. And so Bodhisattva recognizes this is emptiness. This is what is in Buddhism called emptiness, the lack of self-existence to any phenomena, thing, person. That all things, phenomena, people, experiences are the result of the subject and the object coming into existence at the same time. The subject's not out there floating around waiting for the object to whack into it. I'm sorry, the object's not out there floating around waiting for the subject to whack into it. The subject and the object arise together in conjunction. So, the cause of the suffering beings that I perceive are my own tendencies to, to harm others in subtle ways, in, in countless past lives, right? You've got infinite momentum behind us, and the fact that we perceive beings suffering is because our momentum has led us to this point. And a bodhisattva having full realization of this fact, knows that, therefore, the only way that they themselves could become enlightened is to work for the enlightenment of others. Only by helping others to develop their enlightenment can a bodhisattva or a bodhisattva wannabe develop the momentum to become, to, to, to develop that that level of realization themselves. In the text, the three principal paths, the, ver the verses on bodhicitta. Renunciation, though, can never bring the total bliss of matchless Buddhahood unless it's bound by the purest wish. And so the wise seek the high wish for enlightenment. So that's what I was saying. Renunciation is realizing the deal that I'm in. But realizing the deal that I'm in is not sufficient. I have to realize that everybody else is in this position and work for their benefit. Now here we go for some colorful imagery. 
They're swept along on four fierce river currents, chained up tight in past deeds hard to undo, stuffed in a steel cage of grasping self, smothered in pitch-black ignorance. In a limitless round they're born, and in their births are tortured by three sufferings without a break. Think of how your mothers feel. Think of what's happening to them. Try to develop the highest wish. That's certainly vivid, isn't it? And um, the commentary breaks down what this means in a, in a greater way. And the first thing that he does, uh, this is um, Pobonka Rinpoche commenting on Jitsongkapa. Uh, the first thing that he does is he quotes um, the benefits for developing the wish for enlightenment. And so um, this is, again... Um, this is a very Gelugpa thing. Um, you know, there are lots of different styles of Buddhism. Some of them emphasize meditation. Some of them emphasize um, altruistic acts. Um, the Gelugpa school emphasizes lists of things. So, we are the, as my teacher says, we put the geek in prasangika. So we have the, the benefits of developing the wish for enlightenment. And, uh, this is, I don't know, seven or six or seven or eight items. Um, and this, I believe, comes right out of the um, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shanti Deva, who's like the Bodhicitta guy. Like, that Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life is like the go to text. So, pretty much anybody who's talking about Bodhicitta at some point or another points back to, points back to Shanti Deva's text. And um, Guide to the, I haven't actually read Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life cover to cover. It's on my list, of course, um, but I've been told it's a desert island text. It's like if you had to pick only one, this would be a really good one to choose. So let's bust through these. If you have the wish, then all of your good deeds become cause for omniscience. Omniscience is, of course, the ability to, is uh, unlimited knowledge. And there's a big debate in what omniscience means in the Buddhist world. Does it mean, you know, the like personal names of all the fish at the bottom of the sea? Maybe, maybe not. Does it mean, you know, things are going to happen before they happen? Do you, does it mean, you know, what people are going to say before they say it? There's a big debate on this, and I don't want to go into it too much. But it does, one thing it, we can say it means is it means knowing the difference between things that are going to help your situation and things that are going to hurt your situation. Or in other words, what lifestyle behaviors to give up and what lifestyle behaviors to take up. And so if you always knew under every circumstance what was the right thing to do, that would be a pretty damn good example of omniscience. And so if you have the wish, all of your good deeds become cause for omniscience because you're, you have this, this unwavering compass that knows to never hurt other beings even in subtle ways. You become a person worthy of the honor of all beings. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm pr I, I try to take a pretty pragmatic approach to Buddhism, so some of this uh, kind of stuff doesn't really connect with me very deeply. So if it works for you, then that's great. I personally am not super motivated by becoming a person worthy of the honor of all beings, and that feels kind of egoic to me, but that's just because of my own, under my own misunderstandings, you know? Um, this means that 
you, it means that you don't ever hurt anybody, you know? And so everybody feels safe around you. All beings feel safe around you. Imagine if all beings just like, you know, like the way that birds like fly away when you approach, you know, they're like protecting their lives. Imagine if beings never felt fear around you ever again. And they never felt like they had to run away or fly away or scurry away because you might step on them or eat them. You outshine the practitioners of lower paths. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, the lower paths, the three principal paths, uh, the lower paths, uh, the so-called lower paths, I prefer to call them the foundational paths um, because they're not lower, they're prerequisites, you know? Uh, this is another kind of hierarchical, kind of patriarchal thing that I think, in my opinion, that came out of Tibetan Buddhism that we get to kind of deconstruct being in a more um, uh, um, uh, balanced society. I'm trying to find the right word for that, but you know what I mean, a feminist type of society. Um, so the, these are the three principal paths. The so-called lower paths are um, renunciation. The medium path is um, developing bodhicitta and the highest path is developing wisdom. Um, this just means, this is again like the text says, renunciation is insufficient. You have to develop bodhicitta. So you so outshine the practitioners of lower paths. Um, D, the, the tiniest good deed you do becomes a spiritual practice of the greater way. If your heart is infused with this powerful compassion and this powerful altruism, then you can't do anything that's not uh, a cause for spiritual evolution. And likewise, the good deeds you do become the activity of a bodhisattva. If you have bodhicitta, then everything that you do is bodhisattva. You, you're, you know, going to the bathroom is with the understanding that this is a necessary thing that you need to do in order to cultivate yourself spiritually. You know, it's not like going to the bathroom is an altruistic act in and of itself, but it is absolutely necessary to your, your development. Therefore, it becomes the activity of a bodhisattva, and therefore even something like defecating can generate massive good karma because you're actually doing it to serve others. Take it or leave it. The Buddhas look upon you as their own child. I don't think that needs any commentary, huh? All bodhisattvas then consider you their own brother or sister. So you're like, you've got a posse. You've got a badass posse. By achieving the wish, you have entered into the greater way or the Mahayana. So this is presumably what differentiates the Mahayana from the Hinayana. I, I'm reluctant to use that word because it's a, a Mahayana thing that's that uh, in some circumstances Hinayana is considered derogatory. Um, so, but this is what this is what defines the Mahayana, the the greater way, the um, fastest car, the biggest rocket ship. Maha means biggest, and Yana means vehicle uh, or conveyance, I guess. So Mahayana is like the biggest rocket, the best rocket. If you have the wish, now this is for me a big takeaway. If you have the wish, it is possible that you will achieve enlightenment in one lifetime. And this is because uh, once we have, once the compass needle has been shifted towards the path of enlightenment, we have the opportunity 
we finally begin to have the opportunity to supercharge the process. And this is when we start getting into, into the third principle path of wisdom, when we start getting into metaphysics and breaking down how is the universe being created on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, and how can I use my mind to inject itself into that process to decide how I want the universe to evolve. Well, the only way that works is if it's based on an understanding of the laws of karma and causes and, and effects, and with uh, deeply infused with the motivation of helping others. Why? Because we have to want it more for them than we do for ourselves in order to manifest it for ourselves. Then we can get into the, uh, you know, then we can get into high octane fuel and really accelerate that process. And that's how come you can, if you have the wish, you can get enlightened in one lifetime. I bet you're asking yourself, how do I get me some of that bodhicitta? Well, I'm glad you asked, because we have the seven-step cause and effect method for developing the wish for enlightenment. seven-step cause-and-effect method for developing the wish for enlightenment. It's a very uh, fancy title. Um, it's actually eight steps, and the first step might be the hardest. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because the seven-step cause-and-effect method for developing the wish for enlightenment is um, based on having developed equanimity. And equanimity means that there are, there are basically three types of people in the world. There are people that you like, there are people that you don't like, and there are people that you don't really care about one way or the other. And equanimity means seeing all of these people as equal, in spite of your personal proclivities and opinions about the situation. And, uh, and it doesn't mean to make everybody neutral. It doesn't mean to turn everybody into people you don't care about one way or the other. This is a common, maybe you've heard this, that like, there's some kind of like spiritual value in becoming neutral and kind of detached and not really like feeling anything strongly one way or the other way about other people. I don't know if you've heard that before, but maybe you have. Um, that's, kind of, that's kind of one of the popular ideas of what equanimity means. It's just sort of like, I don't really have peaks, I don't really have valleys, I just sort of am like everything is neutral. But uh, according to this, according to Bodhicitta trying to cultivate altruism, on the contrary, we want to take our favorite person in the world and we want to ratchet everybody to that level. And then we want to ratchet everybody higher than that. So that's what equanimity means. Uh, in Sanskrit, it means upeksha. Uh, in Sanskrit, the word is upeksha. And upeksha means to overlook. Upa means uh, over and aksh means look or see. So upa aksh, upeksha, to overlook the little niggling things that irritate us about people. And to see instead that they're awesome. Instead to like, you know what, I'm not worried about the things that bother me about other people, I'm only willing to look at the things that I like about other people. And then, furthermore, how would a, how would a, bodhis, a bodhisattva or a Buddha see this person? Their heart is breaking with love for each and every living being, you know? And that's what I'm trying to be like. So that's what developing equanimity is. And, uh, and so, when we're doing the seven step cause and effect method for developing the wish for enlightenment, we can do each of these stages uh, to, to add the equanimity practice to the bodhisattva practice. 
for each of these stages that we're going to go through, we, we first do it uh, by visualizing people that we like. And then we do the same state, we do the same stage again, except with people that we feel neutral about. And then we do the same stage, the, the same step with people that we actively dislike. And so we're kind of like, you know, in a, this is in meditation uh, or in a content or contemplative type uh, state, right? This is a meditation practice. And uh, we're trying to like uh, uh, crack open our heart stage step, step by step. And, um, you know, eventually realize that the cockroaches are no different than our loved ones. You know, they're all fundamentally the same and that they all fundamentally, they have the same basic type of consciousness. They have just different kinds of manifestations of consciousness and that we, that I'm not going to get enlightened until I love all of them like a mother loves their only child, you know? So step zero, develop equanimity. Step one, having developed equanimity, Recognize that all beings have been your mother. Uh, they, they actually say that this is kind of tame. The, uh, they say that uh, recognize that every being is your mother. Um, this is um, part of metaphysics. We have to wrap our mind a about, around it a little bit because uh, in the Buddhist metaphysical system, uh, it presupposes infinite previous rebirths and infinite future births that essentially time is unlimited in, in either direction, and that um, a Buddha is a being that's not subjected to time. They have, they have figured out how time is working, and they kind of have stepped outside of it, and they are therefore able to see all time, in quotes, um, as if it is part of their present experience. Um, this is, you know, it's hard to wrap our mind about that, around that. It's like, okay, well, I mean, I guess I'll... I guess I'll know what that means when I'm a Buddha. But we can start to play with these ideas and start to stretch our capacity for what we think is possible. Um, but given this, take, taking this as a posit, if there is unlimited previous rebirths, then every being has been in every conceivable relationship with every other being an unlimited number of times. And so we're going to focus on one type of relationship, which is the, the mother-child relationship. And we just have to take as a logical proof that every being has been our mother in a previous lifetime. Technically, they've been our mother unlimited numbers of times. And then we... So this is just something we have to take for granted when we're engaging with the world of Buddhist metaphysics. Unlimited previous rebirths, therefore every being has been in every conceivable relationship with every other being. Step two, remember, uh, and then remember equanimity, right? First we remember the people that we love. Okay, those people have been my mother. They've, they've cared for me. They've nursed me there from their, they've gestated me inside their body and they have nursed me from their own body. They have fed me their own fluids and they have made sure that I didn't get eaten by wild animals and they made sure that I figured out how to clothe myself. This is step two, remembering the kindness that they have shown you. But then, because of equanimity, we're saying, first we imagine the people that we love, then we imagine people that we feel neutral about, and then we realize that even the cockroaches that are in my sink every day, no matter how many times I take them out, they're still there the next day. Those beings have been my mother as well. And I have to love them, you know? I have to very carefully take them outside and put them in a place where I think they will be happier than in my sink. I don't even know how they get in there. 
remembering the kindness that they have shown us, how they've taken care of us, how they nursed us from our own body. And then step three, this is like where we, where we like put our foot down and we decide to repay their kindness. And we say, you know what? That is a lot of work that they put into making sure that I wasn't eaten by wolves or ants for that matter. And uh, I'm going to make sure that my mother is taken care of, you know? But they're all my mother. Um, step four, love all people with the intensity of a mother for her only child. Or I guess in this me metaphor, a child for their mother. But we've been their mother too if countless rebirths is, you know, countless previous births is the fact of the matter, then we have, to, we have to realize that the only reason we feel that love towards our current mother or towards our current child and not towards the cockroaches and all the other people that we inter interact with every day is just because of our limited perspective of how, how reality is working. It's just a, a self-identification habit that like I exist and that being is that particular mother is my mother or that particular being is my child. And then we say, well, that's just undemocratic. That's selfish and doesn't take into reality, doesn't take into account how reality is really working, according to Buddhist metaphysics. And we just have to say it's silly to, to favor that mother over all the other mothers. And so at this point, hopefully we are at step five and we are uh, really possessed by the feeling of deep compassion for other beings. This is that karuna, that heartbreaking compassion. Step six, the extraordinary form of personal responsibility. Decide, decide to help everyone, even if you have to do it all by yourself. Even if nobody is going to show up to help you, even if nobody else is trying to dig these chumps out of samsara, I'm going to do it all by myself. It takes that virya, that's another Sanskrit word for uh, intensity and, and focus and fire and passion, you know? It takes that, that level of extraordinary personal responsibility to get your get in the gear that's really going to get your bodhisattva, bodhicitta car, you know, going fast enough to time travel or whatever. And then uh, step seven, fortunately step seven is actually, the, is actually the accomplishment. Achieve the wish to become enlightened for the sake of every living being. This is considered a deep personal transformation this is a, a realization, uh, not just an idea of compassion, but like this is when like the, the, the new, when true north is discovered and the compass no longer points at that fake direction that was not leading you towards enlightenment. The compass was, is always gonna point north from now on. Um, this is connected to the direct perception of emptiness, the direct perception of ultimate reality, which is the third of the five yogic paths, if you, were, if you were here for my class on the five yogic paths, um, which are, um, the third one is seeing, accumulation, preparation, accumulation, seeing, 
habituation and no more learning. Step three uh, is the path of seeing. And that's where the subject-object matrix completely breaks down and you have a non-dual state of awareness in which the sense of self, say your name to yourself, goes away. And your sense of self, your sense of quote-unquote I, shifts from a solitary body and mind to an all-inclusive body and mind that sees all, sees the container of the universe and everything within it as that under that umbrella of I. That's what, that's what I means to me while experiencing the direct perception of emptiness. And there are different variants on the direct perception of emptiness. And this is what the, the um, Mahayana really emphasizes, is that it's possible to, in, to, in deep meditation, have uh, an experience of non-dual awareness, which is where this is what I'm describing, the sense of I shifts from being a solitary being to all of existence. It's possible to have this experience that is not infused with bodhicitta. So I've heard. I don't know. I don't know. But I've been told that it's possible to have this experience without bodhicitta. And so this is what would lead to like a temporary nirvana or a um, form realm or formless realm, if you've ever heard of this kind of thing. These are um, future births that are created by deep states of meditation that are not infused with altruism, that are not infused with bodhicitta. So it's very important that we cultivate a heart of altruism, cultivate a heart of bodhicitta, so that when eventually it's going to have to, ha it's going to happen, we're on an evolutionary path. It's, it, it's going to happen that we're going to have the direct perception of emptiness, the direct perception of ultimate reality. And what we want is for that direct perception of ultimate reality to be infused with the fragrance of bodhicitta. And then, when we come out of that experience, this is the fourth path, the path of habituation, we then are uh, an Arya Bodhisattva. Um, there are apparently Aryas that are not also Bodhisattvas. They've had the direct perception of emptiness, but they have not had it with the realization that compassion is a critical component to total enlightenment. So, when we're preparing ourselves for these deep states of meditation, these transformative states, uh, we want to remember that the only way to do it for me is to want it more for others than I do for myself. Suppose a mother, suppose a mother, this for me, I, I don't have any children, so I, I'm going to switch this around. This works better for me with, when I think about my mother, who's, you know, that precious person in my life. Suppose your mother has slipped off of a ledge into a pit of red hot coals. The fire is searing her body. You cannot stand to see it go on for a single second. You throw yourself forward to pull your mother out. All the living creatures of the universe, all our dear mothers, are burning in the same way, in the unbearable pain of the lower realms and the circle of life in general. 
when we cannot stand to see it go on for a single second more, when we finally feel the true wish to reach total enlightenment immediately for the sake of every living being, then you can say you have attained the wish for enlightenment.